welcome to another episode of The Two Old Fogey Yogis. Your hosts each week are Swami Ashokananda and Reverend Pram, who between us have nearly 100 years of living la vida integral yoga. And that's what makes us Two Old Fogey Yogis. So in a recent episode, we're talking about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is a foundational text in classical yoga. And we were talking about the kleshas. So there's five kleshas. We're going to go into the last one and really try to unpack that. So put on your seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully it'll be an enjoyable bumpy ride. <laughs> Okay, so let's just give people maybe a refresher a little bit. There's five kleshas, and they are referred to sometimes as obstacles, afflictions along the path. And let's just review what they are. So avidya, which is ignorance, asmita, egoism, raga, attachment, dvesha, aversion, abhinivesha, clinging to bodily life. And then Gurudev in his translation and commentary basically says, yeah, ignorance, egoism, attachment, hatred is what he calls aversion and Mm -hmm. clinging to bodily life are the five obstacles. Mm -hmm. He then says here, Patanjali gives these obstacles, kleshas, which will then be explained one by one in the following sutras. Gurudev points out the order is significant. Mm -hmm. Because from ignorance of the self, we get egoism. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't know who we truly are as that higher self, not the ego self, then egoism has a field in which to grow, proliferate, kind of take over our lives, shall we say. Yeah, there's a vacuum that ego fills. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then because of egoism, we get into all this desires and attachment to things. And then because we're attached to things, if they are taken away or we don't get them, then we have aversion or hatred to somebody. Oh, you got in the way of me getting this. Right? Yeah, I think the essential thing is that once we forget who we are and we are who we're not, the body, mind, then we know something's missing. So uh-huh. there has to be desire. Because something's missing. It, or actually, it's accurate. There is something missing, which is <laughs> our true self, right? Yeah, so, not what we think. But... Yeah, 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 it's not the car or, or the relationship. <laughs> but if something is missing, that part is true. And we should be striving to fill what's missing, but has to be done properly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then this last one is so interesting because it's kind of a cascade and just like some really bad news, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean about the bumpy ride. It's like <laughs> once a vidya is going on, that's the human condition. Yeah. Come into this whole world of samsara, maya, with this ignorance, unfortunately, of our true right. nature. And our whole culture just reinforces that ignorance. Exactly. Yeah. Then the whole cascade happens, and the ego, like you say, tries to fill the vacuum, and then it desires things to feel satisfied and content and happy. It's constantly looking outside for that satisfaction. I can't get no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> driving around in my car (laughs) 
can't find it. <laughs> yeah. And so the other side of that, which are the two sides of the coin, which, and then anything that gets in my way, I don't yeah. like, I'm going to push away. I'm going to resist. I'm going to dislike, hate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the Gita, Gita says, uh, uh, that desire and anger are very much connected, both born of rajas, you know. So yeah, once there's desire, then there's going to be the frustration of the lack of fulfillment. And then there's this rage that comes out. Yeah. yeah. I was hearing in this one commentary on the sutras that in the Gita, a large part of the Gita is teachings on desire. Yeah, and different commentators approach it differently. Some feel that's a hard line against desire. Some say, no, that's a, that's not the way, right way to interpret it. I tend to be somewhere in the middle there. How do you modulate that for yourself? There's a verse in the Gita that says, even the wise, which I interpret to be even the enlightened, have desires will flow into their mind. But it's like a, a river flowing into the ocean. The ocean is not affected by it. It's still, there's still desires there. Yeah. They may or may, may or may not fulfill it, but mm -hmm. there's no rising and falling of the mind. There's uh, there's no wave created, no vrittis created, even though they may say, yeah, I think I'd like to have an ice cream or pizza or something, whatever it is, whereas we get affected by the desire. I think what the, the Gita talks about is, it's interesting, I forget, I forget the words in Sanskrit, but they say what you want to accomplish is to be is to let go of being a desire of desire. Oh. Right now, we all desire, we have a, an attachment to being a desire of desire. But if we let go of desiring desires, then desires may still be there, but we have a different relationship toward them. And they have a different effect on the capacity to create a disturbance. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Because yeah. in a sense, being in the world just by its nature, we've incarnated, well, at least according to the Buddhists, and I think the moksha traditions, yoga, Hinduism, Jainism, et cetera, would really agree that samsara is the place where we where we came because we have desire. Yeah. It, <laughs> you wouldn't be here if you had no desire. Why would you come here? Yeah. Right. It's the <laughs> desire realm. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even to build lotus, where does that come from? That thought, I'm going to build interfaith temple. It comes into his mind. And he works real hard to make it happen. Yeah. First to raise the money and then to build it. I don't think it was a disturbing event for him at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is coming through me. Yeah. For the benefit of others. I mean, I guess that's also, is it like enlightened desire? What does that mean? Is the desire primarily to be of service to others, to relieve suffering, to bring more wisdom into the world? Yes, exactly. I think if it's asmita desire, if it's about me, mine, then there's more of a chance of it creating disturbance. Yeah. I think Gurudev said, you know, well, if if it, it's God's project, if it doesn't happen, the world doesn't happen, why would I worry about that? Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's a very interesting state. I, I, I would love to have most of my, <laughs> my, my desires coming from that realm. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Let's, let's sign up for that. Okay. <laughs> Wait a second, we did. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I signed up for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's we're on, brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> All right, now what about this fifth klesha, this abhinivesha? So we know what the cascade looks like from ignorance into egoism, to attachment, to aversion. 
And now we land in Abhinivesha clinging to bodily life. Some people define it as any kind of clinging or the inability to let go, let go of anything that's going to keep you bound. Also Mm -hmm. fear, it's like the reservoir. It's what gives rise to our primal fears, right? Mm -hmm. And anxieties. In the second chapter, where now we're going into the different kleshas, in Gurudev's commentary, he translates clinging to life, flowing by its own potency, Mm. and in brackets, due to past experience, Mm. exists even in the wise. Even in the wise. That that always intrigues me. I don't, again, what the wise, are they talking about enlightened people or people far along the path? In other words, is an enlightened person also clinging to life in the body uh, in, in some subtle way? I think that the wise, yeah, it's like the sages, those who are accomplished. I think the fully awakened, clinging to life is just part of the reptilian brain. Let's call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So that's going to be there, but they're not affected by that it, so thus the clinging part doesn't happen mm. but maybe they're still going to be careful to not walk off a cliff or <laughs> yeah i mean there's stories of course of the mystics absorbed in right samadhi and and in these altered states and have no awareness of their bodies and when i look at gurudev he lived on the edge Mm-hmm. He was fearless. Mm. I mean, I was in plane crashes with him. Mm. He was just equal mm. vision. I mean, <laughs> unaffected. Mm. At the same time, he wasn't going to stick his finger in a light socket. Yeah. Not necessarily. He might experiment with, well, what happens when, but you know, in a conscious way. Yeah. May, do you think that someone like Gurudev, or let's just say Gurudev, would have a, would have had a preference? to live longer in the body no 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 preference he had no i saw because i i was blessed to be his assistant and so i saw him in different conditions and sickness and health and he had a stroke in i think it was like 1991 and that was in india we took him to the hospital and he was i saw he was ready to like if this is it yep okay Mm. goodbye Mm. but Somehow, I mean, he even said after he was completely bags packed. I'm out of here, but I'm not enlightened. I don't know what that looks or feels like, but he felt that his service was still needed on the earth plane. For sure. 1990. Yeah. Yeah. In the physical form. And so he literally came back into the body. I saw that happen. And Swami Lalitananda was with me. She saw it as well. Because mm. he was, he, he thought he was gone for a bit. Yeah, he was definitely. I mean, at one point he did flatline. Oh, oh yeah, wow. he, he okay. was. He was gone, and then he came back, Whoa. and it seemed like it was conscious, some conscious part of that, and it wasn't like a clinging. He was ready to go, but he said it wasn't the time. And then when he actually did leave the body, it was again just so clear this is the time and he kept saying different things like i've shared with you meaning not me personally but you know with all of his students the world everything that i have i've given you everything 
That's true. I haven't held back on anything. There's nothing more for me mm. to give you. His body was, was not that serviceful mm-hmm. for the purposes of what he really wanted to do. Rudev's service was so deeply tied to traveling the world. Right. This is obviously before Zoom and <laughs> yeah, yeah. all of these things that today we have access to. It was if you wanted to hear Gurudev speak, he'd have to go somewhere. You'd have to come there. You know, it wasn't wasn't like today. So his body really couldn't do that anymore. He felt, if I can't travel, then maybe I give Darshan an an even deeper way. Yes. Yeah. And and that's what he always said, too, is that he didn't need the physical body. Yeah. Bless us. Yeah, to bless us (laughs) and to continue the teaching, the inner teaching mm-hmm. that anyone who feels attuned to him can receive, whether he's in the body or out of the body. I mean, he used to say that all the time that the physical body is just, it's an instrument and it's not necessary for a more beginning student. Yes, extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. As you advance on the path, that's not as necessary. You can tune into the sad guru. Yeah, I see that. Uh, I must have been more of a beginner because I think I really needed the physical contact during those years. But I see the people who get initiated now, they feel so connected to him. Yeah. Whatever, they'll never be able to meet him physically, but I'm so impressed with the connection they feel. So maybe those, maybe the advanced ones are coming later than us. Yeah, maybe they're more advanced. Yeah. And I've also heard like many stories of his students having these incredible experiences after he left the body. Mm-hmm, yeah. And he would say, here, I can only reach so far with my physical body. <laughs> right, yeah. But in the astral body, I can do everything. I'm unimpeded by the physical. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I have a question. My mom, it looked like she was dying. Now it's a little bit up in the air. But she was so looking forward to it. And she was so discouraged when it seemed like she may not go. She really felt dying, it takes so long. Why should it take this long? Can I just leave the body? I didn't check. It doesn't seem to be, at least not she's conscious. She's not conscious of any fear. Uh, she's so much looking forward to what she calls this big rest. How would you take that? Because uh, maybe not everybody has this fear of you know wanting to cling to the body and fear of leaving it. First of all, let's just call a spade a spade. Your mother is not like an ordinary person. (laughs) Okay, let's call a spade a spade. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Your mom is no ordinary. Oh, I just came yesterday and da-da-da-da. No, no. Yeah. So she has been... I would put in the category of the wise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's different. I think it's also different when you are getting on in years, which your Mm -hmm. mother is, how old is she now? She'll be 91 soon, yeah. Yeah, and you're Mm -hmm. you're at that stage of life where your body is not... The old gray mare just ain't what she used to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a struggle, you know? I think in really in a well-lived life... And in a life in which you feel really situated, yeah. <laughs> I to use that word, situated in your spiritual awareness, yeah, it pervades your whole being. It informs everything and in how you see yourself, 
others, the world, you are at a place of some sort of inner peace is happening. There's less of a call of the wild. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, of of the of the Maya, yeah. Yeah, of the Maya. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you have to ferret out is is somebody kind of experiencing a low grade depression mm. that can be remediated, mm. or have they really come to a point in their life of just peace, acceptance? You know, I feel good about how I've lived my life. I you're almost quoting her, you know, that's exactly what she tells me that uh, I, I've led a full good life. That's true. I think that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah. And I think that all helps in the letting go. It's how you live your life. There's a quote, what is found then is found now. What is found now is found then. You can't like live your life, just whatever, helter skelter, whatever, whatever. And then think you're going to at the moment of death be like, see you all, woohoo, I'm happy, I'm content, because you haven't done all the preparatory work that can lead you to that experience of what your mother's expressing, the well-lived life. Yeah. Where you feel content, you feel good about yourself, and you're okay. There's You don't feel there's anything to cling to. Yeah, in terms of the quotient, there may be still some avidya, but I'm not seeing very much ego, attraction, repulsion. And maybe that's why there's not that much abhinivesa either. Yeah, I've seen people who are in their last moments and they are just terrified, Mm -hmm. still clinging, believing like if I can just grasp more, Mm -hmm. you know, I can hang on. There's a whole different quality in someone who is really ready to let go. And I'm not talking in any type of like, you know, I want to take my own life kind of thing, because you yeah. know, in our tradition, well, in all the moksha traditions, uh, and many faiths, it's just, uh, uh, yeah, let nature run its course. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't take that in your hands. Yeah. Right. It's bad karma. I mean, Guru yeah. talked about that. Mm-hmm. A yeah. lot, you know, he was asked about that so much. And yeah. he always explained that, that is such negative karma. You just can't even imagine what you're bringing onto yourself. You think you're getting out of one problem. Mm-hmm. You are into a whole world of hurt and problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, There's no relief going to be found in that avenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think really the thing is, is figuring out is the person depressed or are they really at end of life and have have made their own peace? And then that's a beautiful thing to be celebrated. Yeah. She also, I think a part of it, she has a lot of faith in me, you know, having faith in someone, I think also makes a difference. So she says, you know, uh, you better be with me and not physically, but you better be with me. You Don't fail me now. I'm counting on you. To take me to take me to the next place, I say. I say. Sure, Ma, I'll I'll do it. That's so beautiful. In Tibetan Buddhism, there is a practice where actually a Rinpoche or Lama can perform what's called poa, which is a transfer of consciousness. So you Mm. actually are with the person at the time of death, ideally Mm. physically there, but if you can't be at a distance, and and you literally are praying for them, holding this sacred space uh, to stabilize their mind as they 
pass and you literally pull their consciousness out and you bring it to a higher level so that they do attain liberation. I've heard about Tibetan monks who, if their relatives, their blood relatives are kind of moaning and groaning around them, they'll kick them out and bring the monks in to repeat mantras. Uh, they don't need all this, uh, woe is me, please stay, you know, right. uh, stuff, you know, uh, let them go in the right spirit, you know. Right. And Guru yeah. used to always say, too, that people would say, what can I do? My mother passed my father or this good friend. What's the best thing that I can do now? And he said, the best thing you could do, it's not like repress your sorrow at losing that person, but as much as you can sort of put it on hold and put that person's needs first. Right and think good thoughts about them. Continue to hold a meditative space when you think of them. Send them positive energy, not grieving energy. The grieving energy, he said, pulls them back to right. the earth plane. The positive, visualizing their liberation, being prayerful, meditative, chanting, repeating mantras, that all sends them the energy that enables them to almost in a sense, like pull the clip on the parachute and just sail, sail on to higher state of consciousness or to a higher birth. So that's what you can do. That's the most helpful. You know, uh, one of our teachers, longtime teachers, uh, our husband passed away suddenly, unexpectedly a few days ago. And I wrote to her saying, I'm praying for the person and for condolences to the family. Yeah. She, she wrote back saying how grateful she was to hear that. And that she knows that her husband really doesn't want her to be in grief now. Yeah. And almost as a, as a, a gift to him. She's doing, uh, keeping her heart open and feeling the love, being surrounded by love. And uh, she's not letting herself fall down now as a service to her husband because that's not what he needs not so what he wants for her he wants her to still lead a happy life so yeah. i was i was impressed with that that's beautiful because yeah. that is that's the best service if we really love someone yeah talk about clinging if we're clinging to the person for our own need then, yeah. we're, then we're just going to be thinking of ourselves right if we're really thinking about the best for that person that's exactly what we want to do yeah yeah and it may be to encourage them to let go and go, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Some people say, okay, I'm clinging to life because I think this is it. This is my only life and I don't want to leave these people behind or whatever, whatever. Or I don't know what I'm going toward. Yeah. You know? Fear of the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Not believing, going, believing that you're, you're going to be eaten by the worms. Yeah. If you're Christian, Catholic, uh, Judeo-Christian, you may feel you're going to heaven. So you're good and that's great. Whatever it is, your belief system is in the moksha traditions, all of the understanding of death is also informed by the principle of reincarnation and rebirths. And that this isn't our only life. We've had past lives. We're going to have lives again. And then right. people say, well, yeah, I don't believe in reincarnation. Who cares how I go out, what happens? But in the moksha traditions, it's very important to work on this abhinivesha. Yeah. First of all, in life, so that your life isn't riddled. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You don't work it at death. You have to work it at life. Yeah. Right. But well, death yeah. is a little bit uh, late to begin working on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you get to that point. It's like, hey, wait a second. What was yeah. that thing you said about what? <laughs> yeah. 
what the truth is. Nope, too late. If you have a understanding that you've lived before, you're going to live again, that how you live has an impact on what happens to you in another birth, that really does inform how you live. So in a sense, like preparing to die is what we're doing our whole life, right? I mean, in- mm-hmm in actual physical terms we are we're you know we're not going we're not benjamin button yeah right <laughs> we're going toward death that's the only certain there's no certainty in life the only certainty is death right we say yeah maybe so, taxes taxes also yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> so although i don't pay taxes but yeah <laughs> yeah that's one of the benefits of monastic life um, okay but once we're born we're no longer moving towards birth, we're moving towards death. So how we prepare for death is how we prepare for life and how we live our lives. Mm. And it is so beautiful because if we live our lives with a spiritual basis, a spiritual foundation, and that informs everything that we do, that's going to look real different at end of life. And that's going to look real different in how we take birth again, or maybe how we become enlightened, right? Yeah. But it's interesting, The I guess it's the more Christian belief that there's one birth and then you're going somewhere forever after that. I don't want to judge it. What works for me is the fact that even if I get to a very good place that is nicer than the earth plane and it's really nice there, I, I can only be there as long as my karmas allow me. Then I got to come back here and have another chance to achieve what really the purpose of life is, which is enlightenment. The purpose of life is not heaven or to escape hell. Right. The purpose of life is to be to know who you are. I like that. It appeals to me, my both my heart and my head, that approach that we're looking for something more. Even you know, even uh, these subtle astral planes could be considered a part of Maya. It's still a part of the dream. You're not. You're still not awake fully even in heaven or hell, maybe there's less covering over your mind, mm-hmm. but there's still covers there that need to be worked through. Right. To me, that's interesting that until we really become desirous, we're going to be end up in some level of the dream. Yeah. Even after we leave the body. Right. That makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Because mm-hmm. I think that is it. That's the fruition of the human journey is that full awakening into Sat Chid Ananda, our true nature, existence, yeah. knowledge, bliss of however you want to call it, cosmos consciousness, nirvana, the Jiva Mukta state, uh, however you want to label it. In part of the tradition, it's not even like, okay, and then you become enlightened. Then you really become like what the Buddhists would say, bodhisattva, like how we saw Gurudev is someone who was enlightened uh, however that occurred, you know, he was awake mm. to who he was and is. So he kind of completed the journey, right? Yeah. But he felt this swadharma or this bodhisattva mission, whatever you want to call it, not mission, but just the bodhisattva nature is to express that enlightened awakening, awareness, recognition in your life in a way that is serviceful to others and relieves the suffering of others. That's the bodhisattva path. I have a question. Do you think it's something that you choose with your own volition or it's chosen for you? The whole says, no, 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 you're not, you're not going anywhere yet. I got, I got work to do through you. 
Or do you say, I feel so compassionate for these folks. I think I better stick around for a while. What's your sense? Yeah, my understanding is that the nature of wisdom and enlightenment is compassion. Mm -hmm. And compassion expresses an enlightened activity. That's why there's a saying in Buddhism, there's a saying that there's no enlightened beings, there's only enlightened activity. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is the natural expression. It, that's like seems so natural. It's like the nature. What's the nature? Gurudev used to always give the example of, let's take an apple tree, right? right? You water it, you take care of it, it grows, it produces beautiful fruits. You enjoy the fruits. Someone can come along and throw a rock at the tree and get more fruits. <laughs> right. You know, he yeah. said the tree's nature is like that book that Shel Silverstein, is that the name of him, The Giving Tree? It's just yeah. the nature. The nature of nature is giving. Mm-hmm. All right, Gurudev said, you've never seen a tree eating its own fruit. Yeah. <laughs> we only see human beings eating their own fruit. The whole ego thing is the fruit, you know, and that's why Gurudev used to always quote the Bible when God gave Adam the instruction, don't eat the fruit. He's not talking about the apple. He's talking about the fruit of your life. Offer yeah. that to others. The Gita says, You are welcome to the actions that you do, but not to the fruit of the actions. I just think that that's the nature of enlightenment is compassionate living and wanting to, not wanting to, but it's just, it's like, does a tree want to give? It's just its nature. So I think these enlightened beings take birth. Bodhisattvas come back time and time again. The Dalai Lamas, reincarnated Lamas, the gurus, sadgurus come into this world to relieve suffering and to share wisdom to help people to wake up. Listen to you. I think I lean toward that it's not an individual making a decision. As you say, the enlightened state is expressed as compassion. Yeah. There's not really an individual compassionate individual there. The enlightened state is compassionate. That compassion says, I'm going to stick around these other people I could be useful to. I need to serve them. I lean toward thinking that it's not an individual decision. I agree. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they say that there are no enlightened beings, only enlightened Mm -hmm. activity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is the nature of being enlightened, is enlightened activity. Enlightened activity, yeah. There's not an enlightened being who says, yeah, I feel compassion. I'm going to do this. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. There's there's an ego sense to that, too. Oh, I'm going to do you all a favor. (laughs) (laughs) Share my wisdom with you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I could be going off into this non-dual plane, but instead I'm going to be in this struggle with you. Yeah. So with all of this talk about this clinging to bodily life, uh, let me go out on a limb here a little bit and ask you, like, how much do you feel that sense of obinivation <laughs> life? <laughs> okay, that's a tricky one to answer. Definitely, my meditation has made me more acclimated to a life outside the body, you know, a little bit conceptually and also a little bit experientially, what it would be like to not cling to life in the body. Hmm. So I think I've made in these all these years some headway into that. I still feel a strong pull of identification with the body. But I, I do think that I'll be 
this is my guess. You don't know till it happens. I'll be fairly relaxed and kind of interested as long as I'm not in too much pain. Yeah. If I'm in pain, then it's another story. But if I can be in not too much pain, I'll have some keen interest in the next phase of the journey, if there is a next phase. At least in my current state of awareness, I feel pretty relaxed about it. I'm not aware of carrying around a fear of death. Mm -hmm. It's It's not a heavy thing on my shoulder. Did you have that before you began your yoga practice meditation? I never even thought about it. I wasn't conscious enough to even think much about it. I was too young. Yeah, you know, I came in when I was 19. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't thinking about Yeah, death. I was going to die next, <laughs> next yeah, month. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I wasn't aware then. I was always kind of a big risk taker. Like I described Gurudev as kind of taking risks. I also had that. So I was a little bit of a wild kid. Yeah. Particularly, I would say the last few years, I feel more settled in welcoming a life outside of the physical realm. Mm. I hope I'm being honest with you and our audience. How about you? Do you have any sense of where you stand with it? I really like what you said. And I think think your practices will serve you very well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's that's the important thing is to really have like a rock solid foundation. And mm-hmm. as far as me, so a couple of years ago, I had a serious medical issue and I was pretty much staring in the face of death. Mm-hmm. And that had never happened before. Mm-hmm. And it was a real wake up call. It was litmus test time. It really showed mm-hmm. me that, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it at all. Mm-hmm. I just decided, hey, I think I better find out something about this because I don't know how much time I have. I think also I realized that I I did have fears about it. I didn't feel like the clinging, like because I don't have family and children and all mm-hmm. of that component. I mean, right. I pretty much live my life as a sannyasi. Mm-hmm. And if Gurudev was in the body, it would be way harder. <laughs> right, yeah. Because I really was very attached to my service of him and, you know, and of course, learning from him in the physical form. Mm. So I just decided, well, I need to find out something. And so I started reading Andrew Holacek's book, Preparing to Die. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't Mm. know this is Buddhist teachings or whatever. And as I started reading it, I realized, oh, this is Buddhist teachings. And they're pretty accomplished in this whole area of death and dying. Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah, Tibetan yeah, Buddhism. Yeah, they've gone deep and deep dive Ooh. into that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that led me into a deep dive of learning about the bardos and mm. you know, all the Tibetan teachings about death and dying, which was really interesting because where it led me was kind of in a whole just in a 180 back to just a deeper sense, appreciation, gratitude for, and commitment to my own spiritual path of integral yoga. Mm. I started doing a deeper dive into the yoga sutras and Mm. really understanding the kleshas and- You quoted the Bhagavad Gita just now, right? Yeah, and also (laughs) I've been doing a deep dive into the Gita and Mm. I feel now like I don't have the clinging that I had even a couple of years ago, which I mm. think just came out of ignorance or reflex or whatever. Mm. I feel yeah. like I have such a, a broad body of knowledge about death and dying. Now, of course, it's still, you know, yeah, a lot of it is just conceptual. Yeah, conceptual. Mm-hmm. 
but it's also deepening, deepening layers in my being and really has brought me into a really deep journey with these essential precepts and principles on our path. Now, when I say Asatoma Satgamaye, lead us from the unreal to the real, from darkness to light, from the fear of death to knowledge of our immortality. It has a whole other flavor to that. Yeah. It's yeah, it comes other, to life. Yeah, it comes to life. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole other depth. So I'm just feeling really grateful and just in a, I feel like I'm in this dance with, with death and life and just trying to go as deep as possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anyone in my life who has gone as deep into the probing into death than you. I, I wasn't aware of this near-death experience you had that I'm sure that has a tremendous effect to, to recognize you're, you're knocking on heaven's door and exactly. you don't, it could be any minute. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing that gets your priority. <laughs> <laughs> Catches your attention. Yeah. yeah. All in alignment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also one of my teachers in, in this whole area of, of death and dying from the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition would always quote this George Strait song. Yeah, some of these country western songs have some <laughs> deep stuff to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It says, I ain't never seen a hearse with a luggage rack on top. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking when you said Gurudev has his bag packed, I said, everybody ah, doesn't have very, very many bags to pack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. When he would say that, I would think about, so what luggage do I have? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> I'm also really reflecting on, okay, what's the, what's the luggage I need to unpack, go through, see where it goes, give yeah. away on the physical plane, but also mentally, what emotional baggage do I still have? Just really trying to sort through everything. So yeah, it's, I think preparing to die is preparing to live in a way that's the most simple living, high thinking, most balanced. That's what's going to see you through to the most easeful, peaceful, and fruitful death. It seems to me, I haven't had this near-death experience, but it seems to me that it makes you feel that, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all the small stuff. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what we should call this episode. Don't sweat, <laughs> don't sweat the small stuff. It's all the small stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's a beautiful way to end this episode, yeah. I think. <laughs> that was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And for more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to IntegralYoga.org. Om Shanti.